Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Elevation with Stephen Furtick podcast was created with you in mind. This is a podcast for those feeling discouraged or needing guidance from God. Together in this podcast, we'll dive deep into scripture, uncover the powerful truths that will help you rise above your limitations and embrace your full potential. We're here to equip you with the tools you need to conquer life's challenges. Listen to Elevation with Stephen Furtick every Sunday and Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart for a year, and what a year it has been. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Make Woke AF Daily your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Having a narcissistic parent can be incredibly damaging, destabilizing, and have lifelong effects. In fact, it's one of the dynamics I'm asked about most. What happens when someone you rely on for love, safety, and attachment also invalidates, manipulates, and discards you. On this episode of Navigating Narcissism, I'm joined by Dr. Lily Dunn, whose strikingly honest memoir, Sins of My Father, unravels the mysteries of her delinquent and narcissistic dad. Lily was just six years old when her father abandoned the family and traveled thousands of miles to join the Bhagwan Rajneesh Sanyasin cult seen in the Netflix series Wild Wild Country. From that moment, he lived the life he wanted without regard for Lily or her family's safety, well-being, or financial stability. Lily's story reveals the harm caused by an antagonistic father, the effects of yearning for his love, approval, and validation, and answers the quintessential question all children of narcissists eventually ask. If I have a bad parent, what does that make me? From Red Table Talk Podcast and iHeartMedia, I'm Dr. Romani, and this is Navigating Narcissism. This podcast should not be used as a substitute for medical or mental health advice. Individuals are advised to seek independent medical advice, counseling, and or therapy from a healthcare professional with respect to any medical condition, mental health issue, or health inquiry, including matters discussed on this podcast. This episode discusses abuse, which may be triggering to some people. The views and opinions expressed are solely those of the podcast author or individuals participating in the podcast and do not represent the opinions of Red Table Talk Productions, iHeartMedia, or their employees. Dr. Lily Dunn, it is such an honor to welcome you to Navigating Narcissism. Since 
writing your brilliant memoir, you've actually earned your PhD. So I want to acknowledge that because it's a tremendous accomplishment. Congratulations. Thank you so much. Yeah, I'm still getting used to it. But yeah, <laughs> thank you. Now, your book, Sins of My Father, they can't put down book for me. It earned rave reviews and it landed alongside Michelle Obama's The Light We Carry on The Guardian's Memoirs of the Year. So huge, huge deal. And I want to read to you what one of the guests we had on Navigating Narcissism, Dr. Yanya Lalich, said about your book. Unputdownable, a love story, a horror story, the unmasking of an unfortunately still much beloved guru, a soul searching that can teach us much about how to analyze and escape from a cruel narcissist. It is horrifyingly real and brilliantly written. So to fill in everyone who's listening to our interview, who was that cruel narcissist that you were escaping? This is my father. I probably didn't set out to think that he was a cruel narcissist, even perhaps when I started writing the book. I always knew that he had narcissistic tendencies. But he followed me around like a ghost, as these people do, in terms of the way that his behavior, his betrayal of me had embedded itself into my behavior, my life. And I just couldn't really shake him off. Mm. So my father, he was not famous, but he was quite an extraordinary man in that he was quite adventurous and he took risks but he was incredibly self-centered, so he followed his own impulses. And he lived an extraordinary life. Tell us a little bit about your dad. He left your family when you were six years old. Can you talk about the circumstances under how he left and how it affected all of you who were left behind? Yeah, absolutely. So my dad was born in a sort of small town in the south of England. He was sent to boarding school at a very young age, at age seven. Met my mother when he was 19, sort of lied his way into their first date, but my mom was not aware of it at the time. So he was already sort of lying in his late teens. And then they, they fell in love, deeply in love. They got married very quickly. They had two children, me and my brother, and they lived a very charmed life. They were seen from the outsiders, quite a golden couple. They ran their own publishing business. We lived in North London, lovely big house. Then one day my dad woke up and he disappeared. He didn't tell us where he was going and he didn't tell us when he was going to come back. And I was six, my brother was eight. He had met a woman at a strip club in Soho and she had introduced him to her guru. So he got a one-way ticket to India to meet Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh, who later became Osho, who was the you know notorious guru, very controversial guru, who was the star of World War Country fame, which brought that onto the international map. It was an increasingly popular cult, which of course they didn't see as a cult at the time. My dad went to India and he was gone for six months. And we really thought that he had died. And then when he came back, he told us that he had been reborn. And so the man that we knew before was no longer. And that was a, a huge severance for us and a shock. When he was gone, would he attempt to call you to inquire on how you were doing, your mother, you, your sibling? Well, he called once. So my mom received a phone call, reverse charges. <laughs> And of course, he had gone and left us with no money. And 
Yes, she did recall a very sort of poignant conversation with him where she said, you know, have you thought about your children? Your children are suffering. They want to see you. And he said that is their responsibility, that if they feel sad, that's their responsibility. It has nothing to do with me. And this was very much the culture of the sannyasin movement. People were drawn to it and it appealed to people who wanted to give up that sense of responsibility. They wanted to give up their secure family home or what they saw as the ties of nuclear family, of mortgage, of job, of conventional life. And absolutely just washed their hands of any kind of responsibility. And coming back and saying that he had been reborn was basically a get-out card from being our father. Oh, is that what it was? He's reborn. I have to tell you... When I hear this Bhagwan Rajneesh kind of, you know, cult stuff, it was a cult of literally codified selfishness. They had taken the construct of absolute selfishness and organized it into a cultic structure in this way of you have no responsibility. And so to sense the conventional life means you're trapped and imprisoned. And this idea at six years old that your feelings were your responsibility and that he held no responsibility for the pain that he'd issued upon a child at a very, very exquisite and significant developmental juncture. Six years old, it's a very, very delicate time for any child. And it seems like he came back to tell you he was reborn with absolutely no inquiry on how you were doing, either emotionally or financially. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, that really was the kind of trail that he left in his wake, really from that moment on. It's extraordinary when I think back to that time how little he asked about me, you know, how little he knew me, actually, Mm -hmm. because he was so kind of wrapped up in his own stuff and his own complex stuff. Dr. Lilly, when he left, did he have a job? Could you explain to us sort of financially, yes, he walked out, but what did he really walk out of in terms of the financial responsibilities he left behind and the burden he had shouldered your mother with. Yeah, I mean, he was a very good businessman and continued to be a good businessman throughout his whole life. He had a good instinct about business and he earned a lot of money. But at the time that he left to go to India, he had overstretched himself. He was very extravagant. So, you know, at the first whiff of money, he would be spending more than he was taking in. So they were in trouble at that point financially with the publishing house. So when he left, he left an entire business. He left people waiting for their checks. He left people not getting paid. He left his staff. He also was in debt and we almost lost our house. So my poor mum, she had to take the company through bankruptcy And she was threatened with losing her car and having to give over all her assets. He put us in a lot of danger. And he felt entitled to go do what he wanted. His no sense of consequence was absolutely no even allowance for that. And this cult had allowed a way to even handle that issue of personal responsibility by basically telling people the only thing that matters is how you feel. But what was troubling was he returns home to your family home in in London, six months away in India. And he had a proposal for your mother when he walked in the door with his girlfriend. Yeah, so he came back with the same girlfriend that he had met in the peep show in Soho. And my mom had never met her, but they came round to the house and they sat 
together and he proposed to my mother that he moved back into the house and he moved back into the marital bed and that his girlfriend should move into the basement and that he would basically pirouette between my mum and this woman. Perhaps this felt justified because he had just come from the Rajneesh cult, which, you know, if people know about it, it was all about free love and free sex and let's all kind of share couples and share our partners and everything's fine. But, you know, my mum was not having any of that. She stood up and told him he was bonkers. Just, it's just like, no, that's not going to happen. It's just the entitlement to a point of absurdity that such asks could be made. There was absolutely no filter for this man of how does my behavior affect others? How how would it be received? What might someone else be feeling? It was a literal almost absence of empathy. Yeah, absolutely. And that had been going on for some time before he made his escape from us with the affairs that he was having. He was emotionally absent from us even before I was born because he was playing the field, you know, with multiple different people behind my mom's back. So yeah, the lack of empathy and lack of engagement emotionally was pretty chronic. After he abandons the family and then comes back, what was your relationship like with your father after that? I mean, I was very young. I was very hurt. I was very confused. I loved him enormously. Even talking about it now, I can feel that love despite everything. And I felt Mm -hmm. really deeply, deeply hurt. It sort of started this sort of horrible sense of longing in me that I never really had enough of him. And so he moved to a commune in Suffolk in England called Medina. And my brother and I would go and spend our weekends with him. But we never saw him. We basically spent our time sitting on the sofas outside the meditation room playing Donkey Kong on our consoles. And he'd occasionally come over and give us a pound note or something and say, you know, go off and get yourself some sweets or find yourself a drink or whatever. And I remember seeing different women with him. Mm -hmm. So after breaking up with this lady that he had met when he left us for India, he met a very young woman who was at university. She was 18 and they got together and got married very quickly. So in a way, he sort of repeated that pattern that he had had with my mother, you know, marrying someone very young and very quickly. And she was absolutely beautiful, very stylish. And I adored her. She was like a sister. But in our ages being so close, I found it very difficult because I felt that I had been usurped by her. And his attention was always on her because he was slightly insecure about her. But I think the most damaging thing for me was that I was exposed to his sort of sexual virility or his sexual performance at such a young age. And I was put in this slight sort of place of competition with these women, which I didn't understand. Mm -hmm. I was exposed to too much sex at Medina. The whole kind of cult was based around sex. I started to sort of understand my dad and he had been behaving like that since before I was born. It was all about sort of sexual conquest and his sexual sort of power. He was much more interested in himself as a sexual being other than a sort of loving being. That was very damaging for me. And my mum had a friend who was a psychotherapist at the time. And she suggested that because my dad hadn't ever really been a parent to me, I hadn't had the opportunity to grow as a daughter. I was sort of stuck in that place from when he left, you know, which was a place of longing and a place of 
heartbreak, actually. I was heartbroken. You know, he is so narcissistic and so kind of hard to love in many ways, but he was also incredibly charismatic and actually quite a pathetic man. He was a needy man and mm -hmm. he was weak. So there's this awful kind of conflict in me and the people who love him where we want to protect him, we want to mm -hmm. care for him, we want to be there for him, but also we're being betrayed, we're being hurt, we're dealing with someone who just doesn't have the emotional capacity to care for us. And that's what's so damaging about it. We often call these relationships trauma-bonded relationships because you do feel a love. He is your father. There had to have been moments there that were meaningful to you. And that hanging in there because of the need for attachment, because of the love and holding on in those terrible moments of which there were a lot, and then trying to ride them out for these possible good moments creates this very unique kind of connection with another human being that is a signature of almost every narcissistic relationship. You were a child. You didn't even have the intellect to know that this is not okay. Adults get into relationships like this too, and even armed with that intellect, say they find it it's almost physically impossible to think about pulling themselves out of this kind of a loop. With parents, it literally is physically felt. Like, I can't imagine walking away from this person. I love them. Yeah, and I think it's made worse when they are so unavailable. You never ever feel that you fully get them. You can't hold them. You don't even know them. So they're slippery. That makes it mm -hmm. even worse because there's always that sense of grasping at something that's just out of reach. Correct. And I think at some level, the only person that would really get a glimpse at him, if you would, is somebody he needed for narcissistic supply. His young, beautiful wife would be a great example of that. She was young. She was beautiful. Of course, he was going to marry her. And there was always that sense of an insecurity that she could slip away. That kind of person would receive his attention. And it might be fleeting until the next sexual partner or whomever rolled around. Was your mother aware of what the circumstances were like at this Medina place. Who was pushing for you to continue having contact with your father? Was this something that your mother thought was important? This is a good question. I think my mom had a very, very challenging situation on her hands. Mm -hmm. She came from a very loving family with a very loving father. She was completely in love with my dad. Obviously, when all this kind of imploded on her, but I think a small part of her was always retained that innocence. That's not making an excuse at all. Mm -hmm. My mom is an incredibly strong, positive, mm -hmm. trusting person, but she was not happy about Medina. She came to Medina once and she cried when she was there. She didn't like it. The dilemma that she had was that we wanted to see our father. I think I particularly needed to see my father. She said that I was like a clockwork toy, that when he left, I would start to wind down until I just sort of slowed down. And I became very quiet and very introspective and very sad. And then as I was building up to seeing him again, I would build up again. All the energy was coming back. I was excited. I wanted to be with him. And then I would go through that process again on leaving. So she knew that it was important for me to develop a relationship with him. The biggest dilemma for her was that she was worried that if she said no, it would build his image into an even greater force. You know, he would be this huge sort of 
enigma, you know, who she had stopped us from seeing. And I respect her for that. And I think she also felt when we were growing up as adults that actually we needed to experience our father for who he was. And even if that was a painful process, it was better that we came to that rather than feeling that we weren't able to meet him and actually really try and understand him. And I really respect her for that, but it was not easy for her. I understand that as a mother, as a psychologist, I fully understand where that painful and conflicted drive must have been coming for her. What was, I mean, especially in your early years, six, seven, eight, nine, tens, what was so compelling about your father that was drawing you to want to spend so much time with him? I loved him. He was very affectionate. He was very funny. When I look back on my memories of before he left, he kind of comes across as the archetypal dad, come home from trips abroad and he'd bring us all these special sweets and toys from America. And at Christmas, he would pretend to be Father Christmas and he'd put talcum powder on the bottom of his shoes and there'd be a trail of sort of fake snow coming through from the attic door and we'd have all these amazing stuff in our stockings. He was funny. He was entertaining. He was really affectionate. He had lovely big hands and he was warm and he was cuddly and was my dad. Thank you for sharing that because what you describe here is the father who would bring the gifts from his travels and there were the sort of playful holiday memories and he was entertaining and affectionate. And then you'd go for these weekends and time in Medina or other places he was living. And you couldn't get access to what you knew was going to be fun and loving. It's very, very frustrating. You were always on the edge of your seat because you knew once you could get him, you would have a very pleasant circumstance. And then they'd sort of be these big periods of time waiting for him to come around. So to me, that's the paradox of any narcissistic relationship. It's interesting you saying it in those terms because I've not really thought of it like that before. But I think you're absolutely right. I think it's almost like a drug, isn't it? It's like that first hit you know, you're searching for that first hit, you're searching for that sort of ultimate moment of connection. And, you know, when he moves to Italy, I would sort of go in search of him, and he'd give me a hug. And that became my medicine, it would fill me up again, you know, just to have that contact with him. I mean, he was holding all the cards, and he had an incredible amount of power because of my need. We will be right back with this conversation. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, 
Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Scarcity makes anybody the most interesting person in the room, right? I might even argue a little differently to you, Dr. Lilly, that was it a drug? I actually think that that almost undersells what it was to you. I think it was so much more profound than that. It was mm. joy. It was connection. It was safety in the world. It was happiness. I don't think it was just a quick hit. I think what you wanted is what every human being wants, most of all from a parent. It was love. And you knew how much love could be there at that moment if you could actually get him to sit down long enough. So you were forever on this chase. But the thing you were chasing wasn't at all superficial. It was incredibly deep. And that is a very, very confusing place for a child to be sort of stuck. Yeah. I have to say something you wrote here is on page 104 of your book. I read it. It's right before I was going to sleep. I closed the book, I turned back on the light, I read it again because it dawned on me that what you had written here in a very short paragraph captured not only this incredibly powerful dynamic in your relationship with him, it would inform anybody going through one of these relationships. And let me just give some context. You're now talking about when you were spending summers in Italy. He had moved to a house in Tuscany. You paint this gorgeous picture of what Italy was like, the smells, the sensations, the heat, the rain. I mean, it was absolutely beautiful, but against this backdrop still of this very inaccessible father. At this time, your father's married, and you're talking about the complexity of noticing how he was so adoring of his wife, who was only about seven years older than you, and you were left with this yearning. But this is something you write here, and my father did not want or need this kind of enslavement, but he needed my puppy-like devotion so he could continue to behave as he wanted, the indulged man accountable to no one. But I was also a nuisance to him hanging on his sleeve, so often unable to contain my noisy grief, and it reminded him of what he had done. Can you share what that passage meant to you? And I'd love to share with you why it had such a profound impact on me. I remember writing that. When he got married to his wife, I went along to the wedding, but I spent the whole time hanging on to my dad. And I wouldn't even let them have any photos of themselves on their own because there was me hanging on to him and crying. And I must have been a real pain in the ass for my dad. It must have been really awful from on one side just to have your daughter kind of hanging there crying. But also I was reminding him of the pain that he had put me through because I couldn't contain it myself. Mm -hmm. For years and years, every time I saw him, I would cry. And I did sort of walk around as a slight mirror to him. What you said in that last sentence here was the, I was a nuisance to him, right? And I don't know that a child should ever conceptualize themselves as a nuisance, but I was a nuisance to him, hanging on his sleeve, so often unable to contain my grief, and it reminded him of what he had done. That's the piece. It had reminded him of what he had done that jumped out at me, Dr. Lilly, because I think that line is all about the narcissistic shame which mm. is the core dynamic, especially in a narcissistic parent, that the presence of the child in perpetuity evokes that shame, right? Which is the manifestation of that ego getting injured in that narcissistic parent. And the shame is the most uncomfortable space the narcissistic person can live. And so what do they do? They try to eradicate that source of shame. 
parents do that in different ways. Some people rage at their child. Some people ignore their child. And in this way, you simply trying to get your attachment needs met was evoking shame in him. That was a toxic dance that you were never going to get right. And I think when I read that part of the book, I was so devastated for the girl and the young woman that you were becoming at that point, because you captured what you were. You were literally a stimulus for this man's shame. It's interesting that you pick up that extract because there is that thing that he says to me in Italy. He is high on ecstasy and I've fallen off my motorbike and I'd hurt my leg and I couldn't sleep. And he turned to his wife and said, Lily is the only person who knows me. And I I took this on board as truth, you know, that I was the only person who knew him and that that made me special. And I carried that with me. But it's interesting that you pick up on that passage because in a way he was right, because actually I was reminding him of his shame. I was that truth. I was the walking, talking, crying product of his betrayal. So in a way, I did know him as much as he was able to allow anybody to know him. But he also used Mm -hmm. that statement to me that night as a manipulation. He used it to make me think that I was special in order to keep me hanging on. So, you know, it's a double-edged sword, isn't it? It's a double bind. It's not a simple, straightforward kind of relationship in any way. But it was also an acknowledgement that you were dangerous because you actually did see him. You paid enough attention Mm. to see him. You had not sort of knitted that together. And I guess that goes to my next question. When did you connect the dots in your life, in your relationship with your father, that his behavior was a manifestation of narcissism? I started to realize that something wasn't quite right with him. I mean, you know, obviously I knew that there was quite a lot that wasn't right with him. But (laughs) I started to kind of think maybe this is sort of slightly more sociopathic (laughs) when Mm -hmm. there were a couple of times when I confronted him and he would turn on me and he would be really cruel. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. He would either tell me that he never wanted to see me again or say something really nasty. I'd see a side of him that I'd never seen before. And I realized he did not want to be crossed He did not want to be challenged and that that was incredibly wounding for him to Mm -hmm. the point that he would be irrational. To tell your daughter that they never want to see you again, you're the adult here and you're telling me when I'm 19 and I'm asking you to take some responsibility for what you've done to me, that you never want to see me again. I was just like, Mm -hmm. what? That is not right. I think at that point I started to recognize actually that his behavior was not okay and it was not normal. Mm-hmm. And, you know, slightly frightening. But I think that the real dawning came really when I started to write this book and do my research. And even looking at the myth of Narcissus, I thought was fascinating because it just felt like, oh, my God, that's my dad. So interesting you bring up the myth of Narcissus for how long we've been doing this podcast. I don't know that we've ever fully talked about it. The myth of Narcissus is an interesting one because it's been written and rewritten by different poets in different myths. What part of the myth of Narcissus explained your father? It was the need for someone to reflect or something to reflect your beauty Mm -hmm. and that that's only skin deep to kind of go beyond the surface. 
is dangerous for that person. I think also that I was very struck by Echo in that relationship and questioned what my part of this dynamic was. Clearly, people who are narcissistic need to have that adoration. They need to have the Echo. They need to have the person who is going to keep bolstering them, you know, and keep making them feel that they are this beautiful soul, that they don't need to go beyond, they don't need to face the truth, they don't need to see themselves for who they really are. What is so interesting about the myth of Narcissus is that everyone in that myth was being punished, both Echo and Narcissus. Narcissus's fate, his punishment was that he could not love another, right? And it wasn't even love, it was about admiration, reflection of the physical image. And ultimately in the pain of all of that, he ends his life. But Echo was cursed too. And Echo's curse was to only be able to repeat and not say something new. And so Echo in that way was sort of stuck in a relationship with no identity except sort of repeating and ping-ponging off of Narcissus. They were both cursed. And I think it's a reminder that not only is the narcissistic person cursed, the people who get drawn into these relationships are as well. Yes, that absolutely resonates. It is like a poison. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I didn't want to end up like my father. And at times I was worried that I would, you know, if I didn't face it. Well, it's the curse of these relationships that we do have that fear that will happen. I want to talk a little bit about your father did go into a cultic system. Could you just sort of give us an overview of the Bhagwan Rajneesh cult, I think it's called the Sanyasin movement. Yeah, so Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh was an intelligent, well-educated man in India who started a spiritual movement and had a local following of Indians who came to him when he was a young man. He was quite clever because he combined the Indian spiritualism with Western psychoanalysis and different ways of looking at psychology. And this hadn't really been done before. So this appealed to a generation of young people who were growing up in the 60s and 70s. And there was the summer of love and you know, sexual liberation and a sense of kind of um, radicalism in the youth, you know, that they wanted to get away from the influence of their parents, which they saw as claustrophobic and, you know, that there was a bigger world out there. There was more life. There was international travel. They could learn from other cultures. The Beatles were doing it with their Maharishi. So his spiritual movement, it grew and developed and word got round and the Europeans started to join. And at that point, you know, it was a utopian place. You know, it was, it was beautiful and it was warm and loving and everybody worked for a common good. People were doing therapies and meditation and it was all about developing the self. A lot of people who came from a Catholic upbringing or had been to boarding school or, you know, where they'd felt restricted and they'd been told what to do. It was letting go of all of that and getting in touch with yourself. And I think it was a good way for lots of people to live in those early stages. But there was also a dark side, which was that Bhagwan was mischievous and some of the therapies were quite provocative. People who came in as couples were encouraged to split up and try new partners. Some of the therapies in the early days were quite violent. And then it grew Pune and they moved into America, which is when he had a secretary called Sheila who kind of took command and she found this ranch in Oregon 
where they basically built a city and they did all the plumbing and the infrastructure and the electricity and they built this from scratch. They started to behave in secretive ways and suspicious ways. There was a whole salmonella attack. The FBI got involved and Bhagwan then got confiscated from America and he got sent back to India. You astutely pointed out in your book, the salmonella attack was the only bioterror attack that ever occurred on American soil. I had no idea. But your dad, I think your dad was somewhat suggestible and impressionable, but really gets into that sort of harmful, tyrannical, self-sacrificing, subjugated system. Did your father have that experience within this cult? Because it seems like he managed to harness the cult in a way that worked for him. Yeah, (laughs) I think you're right. Yeah. So, no, he wasn't really like the other disciples and he would not have liked to have aligned himself with the other disciples in that way. He was naturally a leader and he went in with a kind of business mind. So he would go in and advise people on running their own businesses. People admired him and they looked up to him and that suited him well. So in a way, he sort of took on a guru persona as a disciple. Mm -hmm. I think you're absolutely right that he harnessed it to fit in with the way that he wanted to live. So it enabled him to behave in the way that he wanted to behave without having to pay any consequences for that. So my dad didn't really fall for all the therapies. He didn't really meditate. He didn't really take all that that seriously. I think he was in it because he could have multiple lovers. He Mm. was revered within that community. They didn't really know him like we knew Mm -hmm. him. I want to give listeners some other context because I think this is a really important piece of your father's puzzle. Here he is, an occultic system, feels some power in it. Something that was very compelling about your father's history was that at a relatively young age, his parents sent him to a boarding school. And that boarding school was a very harsh and cold and cruel an abusive place. His parents seemed to send him there so they would improve his station and maybe even the family's station in life. But it was a horrific experience for him. My dad was sent to boarding school at the age of seven, and he was very devastated by that from day one. He never really talked about it, but he did tell me about the day that he was left on the step outside the school for the first time and that he cried and cried out to his mum and dad and they just walked away. They didn't even turn around back to him. And he swore from that day that he would never, ever love his parents again. So the betrayal was very, very deep for him. Mm-hmm. He was a very pretty boy. He was a very dreamy boy. He was a creative boy. And I think he was seen as a victim and he was bullied and abused. He did say that he was raped. They have this whole sort of ritual in boarding schools where they treat certain younger, weaker boys as servants. And my dad had to sort of go through all of that, I think, probably over years. So a very undermining experience and very alienating. I imagine it probably felt that he had been evicted from the centre of his family. His mother was very adoring of him. She was his golden child. She favoured him over his sister, even though his sister got to stay at home because she was a girl. And he was, from that moment, almost split, you know, between 
the person he had to be at school and then the person he had to be at home. And I think it's possibly where he cultivated that sort of persona of lying, of cheating, of not really being fully himself, because that's probably how you have to survive when you're in an unhappy situation like that. Can I call you out on an interesting Freudian slip you made? Because yeah. when you were speaking about his mother, you said she was his golden child. You know, oh, really? There, as Freud would say, there are no mistakes. The slip was so telling to me because it seemed like your father, there was a real adoration between them. Mm -hmm. He was her golden child for sure. But I do wonder how much she was what to the degree a parent could be that that idealized figure. And he was being wrested away, you know, from that space, the disruption and attachment that that creates, and that your father, in a way was sort of chasing that attachment that he had lost. And it's very difficult to go back and get obviously, if not impossible, that actual attachment, your father was horribly abused used in that boarding school situation where he had very little power. When we hear about him in this cult, in the Bhagwan Rajneesh cult, what we hear is a man who now actually is sauntering through there and taking that power back. To me, the boarding school felt like a cultic system where he was abused and the mm -hmm. adult cult was a place where he actually got to hold that power. Yeah. And also he took the power into his hands by leaving us as well. So he was evicted as a seven-year-old. And then yep. when my brother mm -hmm. was eight and I was six, he left us. He evicted himself in a very similar way. Mm -hmm. You know, it was very sudden mm -hmm. and very, mm -hmm. it was a severance. It was a trauma. And I think, I mean, what's interesting about the cult is that on the face of it, how could you compare a free-loving, free-sex kind of liberal, radical cult with a very stuffy British boarding school. But actually what started to happen, particularly in the Oregon days, when it did become very cultish, was that it was totally rule-bound and it had a very strong hierarchical structure. People had to behave or they were pushed out. You know, everyone wore the same clothes or similar clothes. So it became very institutionalized, actually. And I think that was possibly quite familiar to my dad. Absolutely familiar to him. Also, probably one of the biggest questions I get as somebody who's so focused on work on narcissism is, why do they become this way? Why does a person become narcissistic? But I always tell people I answer this with an asterisk. And by that, I mean, this does not lift responsibility for their behavior does not obviate that what they did was harmful. None of that is taken away. We know that narcissism is often a byproduct of a disruption in attachment of that kind of loss. It's that sort of violent pulling away, not only from what felt like a securely attached family system, but then being thrown into a system that abused him to not be rescued from that system and then have to keep a foot in the two systems. It steals all of that sense of safety and it plays on that idea of nothing is safe. And so this fragile 
fragile ego, then is all kinds of defenses grow up around that entitlement and grandiosity and validation seeking, anything to find some sense of safety in the world. As your father came up into adolescence and his beauty was revealed and made him attractive, he now, I'm sure, found that, you know, regulating through that, through admiration, through validation, and then ultimately through sexual gratification, he could get, especially given the golden child mother, shall we say it, it really speaks to where this comes from. All of that said, we can psychoanalyze this 20 different ways. There was no responsibility taking. I mean, if we were to go back in time and give him proper trauma therapy, there might have been a shot at some normalization. But these are patterns that are really, really resistant to change. And so... Yeah, I absolutely agree that what happened and getting pulled into another system and having a different kind of power within it, especially as it became more rule bound, it was very telling. But interestingly enough, too, it also feels like this cult system he was in almost emboldened his existing narcissistic qualities because there was no call for accountability. There was no call for responsibility. So it was a bit of a disaster that the, yeah. him and that cult coming together took away any shred of hope that he would be able to ever step up as a present father. Absolutely. Yeah, no, that's amazing. You've summed it up brilliantly there. It's interesting that he didn't take part in the therapies because he would have to start to untangle some of that stuff, which would have been really frightening for him. And so cherry picked, he took those things that he wanted that were helpful to him. The other thing I wanted to say was that people involved in that cult are made to believe that they are special, that they are different from your run-of-the-mill ordinary person from outside. And of course, that is one of the main fueling narcissistic parts of the temperament, isn't it? That, mm -hmm. you know, you as a narcissist have to feel special. And boarding schools do the same. You know, our country in the UK is run by entitled men who went to boarding school, who still don't have to see themselves as ordinary, who were primed to go to Eton and then to Oxford, Cambridge, and to then rule the country. And they never, ever come down to the normal kind of level of the people that they are supposedly protecting. And, you know, I'd say that my dad was the same. He would have learnt that sense of entitlement at school and then he continued to have it in the cult. And it's incredibly difficult to break through that because it is this kind of protective armour, isn't it? I mean, absolutely. And it's the new age narcissistic kind of pick a cult, pick a new age thing. It very much does play into that sort of that idea of specialness, of cherry picking what works and really only cherry picking the pieces of various therapeutic models or selected Eastern philosophies that are just being put out there that will allow a person to maintain that sense of specialness, of no accountability. I mean, that's really all that does. Yeah. At some point, it's a self-destruction that ultimately that destroys other people. Because as you pointed out, these people in these boarding school systems, which really seems like a standardized bullying curriculum, then go on to take that mindset into how they run governments and companies and things that do harm to people because they still continue to bring that deeply entitled mindset to all of it. With your father, 
he also did drink. Was his drinking always an issue? Well, no, he wasn't a drinker. He didn't drink until mm -hmm. he moved to America. This was around the time when he renounced the whole spiritual movement, which, you know, was not like a big dramatic renouncement at all. He was involved with the cult inadvertently for about 20 years, but he wasn't living in a communal setting in the later years. He moved to Mill Valley in California with his wife. And I think he started drinking wine and it was never a worry. We didn't realize that it was as bad as it was until only a couple of years before he died. So his wife left him. That was quite a big shock for him. And he also got embroiled in a scam, which we were very surprised by. But I think by that point, he was quite deluded because he fell for this scam, which was just unbelievably mm -hmm. ridiculous. You know, it was kind of one of those scams that we've all had, you know, those emails saying that you've got a long lost relative who's died in a car crash and we've tracked you down as the next of kin, you know, which my dad would have known was a scam in his right mind, but he fell for it and he lost mm. a lot of money to that. And I think that that combined with his separation from his wife he kind of fell into free fall at that point and then had a very, very kind of dramatic, catastrophic last couple of years of his life where he was in and out of hospital and lost everything. He lost his business, he lost his home, he was deported back to the UK and he basically died homeless on his own in a B&B. I mean, it was a catastrophic fall. Wife leaves him. That's a huge narcissistic injury for him, that rejection, the abandonment, more drinking on top of that. But the scam part was interesting. I think your father was so caught up in the loop of grandiosity and magical thinking that it was, oh, I need money and look how convenient and it's coming to me because I'm special. Of course, yeah. money's coming to me. And I think that we often think of narcissistic people as the scammers, which they often are, but we forget how vulnerable this personality style could make someone to a scam. There's a certain suggestibility. He went into the cult and fell for that hook, line, and sinker. But when you take that suggestibility and you mix it up with entitlement and a perception of specialness and delusional grandiosity, you actually have a bit of a disaster there because there's literally a willingness to say, oh, well, then look at this. Of course, everything worked out because I deserve it too. And then you add to that that he's drinking and so his judgment was off. You could see how he was really a prime candidate for that kind of a scam. My conversation will continue after this break. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 feral hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
Magical thinking, absolutely. That's exactly what it was. And mm -hmm. he also, for as long as I can remember, he wanted to be a millionaire. And so, yeah, suddenly this kind of supposed thing lands in his lap and he thinks, oh, yeah, of course, this is my destiny. <laughs> I'm going to be a millionaire. Mm -hmm. The other thing your father did, because this whole idea with your dad was from a very young age, his power was keeping you in his orbit and in essence, keeping you from fully individuating, you know, fully becoming your whole full self. There was this gravitational pull. But one thing you talk about is this idea of your father dangling carrots to keep you around. Can you explain and talk about what some of those carrots were? Yeah. I mean, he never paid my mom maintenance for us. He only ever gave us mm. gestures. So you know, he would buy yeah. us really fancy designer clothes when he came to London. He'd take us to Selfridges and splurge hundreds of pounds on us, take us out for fancy meals, and he'd drop bits of money into our bank account. But he also always withheld his promises. So he made promises, and we would then be on the end of the phone or the end of an email, and promises wouldn't happen. And so it'd be like, Dad, you said you'd send me that money for this important thing I have to buy. Oh, yeah, yeah, darling, yeah, I'll do it. I'll do it. I just need to wait for some money to come in. And then, you know, five days later, Dad, it's still not in the bank. You know, I'm back in contact with him. Yeah, yeah, it'll be there. I'm just waiting. You know, honey, just wait, wait, you know, just be patient. And then, you know, a week later, two weeks later, just trying to get his attention again and again, just waiting and this happened all around my wedding as well, where he'd promised to pay for certain things. And right up to the wire, we were waiting and not even aware, you know, whether we were even going to be able to follow through because we were still waiting for that money. He also would do those sort of manipulative things where I would phone him and he'd pick up and be like, hey, Lily, honey, I was just thinking about you. You must be psychic. We're psychic. We're connected. And so there was that sort of manipulation as well, that we were special. We had a special bond. We had a special connection. And yeah, I mean, that just kind of kept me there at his side, feeling like we had a special relationship, despite repeated abuses, really, and neglect and pretty bad behavior. That carrot dangling behavior you talk about, Lily, is something in narcissistic relationships we call future faking. It's coming. Yeah, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this thing you asked for, especially when it can be quite grandiose. I'm going to pay for all this. I'm going to take care of that. But what it does is it keeps people on the chain, right? So they keep mm -hmm. getting the ongoing contact and they just keep moving those goalposts and people just sort of keep marching along. And much like a slot machine, every so often they do deliver. The money does show up. The thing does get paid for. So you're thinking, well, it does happen. You know, hearing the magical things like we're psychic, there's still the little girl inside of you that wanted those things to be true. And that is powerful. And that future faking dynamic is a very classical narcissistic dynamic that will sometimes people say, you know, I stayed in this much longer than it was healthier for me because there was always this idea that around the next corner would be something promised, some form of change, something would be different. Yeah, and there was always a wish in me that I would eventually have my dad, however naive that was. Yeah. I think I always secretly wished, even when he was dying and I had just got married and I went out to America to try and save him and get him into rehab, 
there was a little voice in my head that was like, he's on his own. He's going to need me. Finally, he needs me. You know, mm -hmm. his wife's not there. Mm -hmm. Finally, I can step up. I can be that person for him. And mm -hmm. I was willing to leave my husband. I was mm -hmm. willing to leave my life in order to look after him. It was my brother who kind of kept on trying to wake me up. But then interestingly, in the end, our dad didn't want us to stay because he couldn't carry on doing what he wanted to do, which was drink himself to death. I'm so glad you shared that, Dr. Lilly, because I think that's what so many people experience when they have a complicated narcissistic parent. Some people say, what the heck was I holding on for? I said, because that child in you, that thing you quested for, that doesn't go away from us. Mm -hmm. That's all you ever wanted. You simply wanted his presence. So how did having a father like this, we've understood how it affected you as a child, but then you came up into adolescence and adulthood. How did it affect the relationships, especially with men that you had? I think it dramatically affected the relationships I had with men. There was an incident in Italy when I was 13 where one of my dad's friends groomed me and he was my dad's age. He made me think that I loved him, even though I knew I didn't love him, but he basically wanted to have sex with me. I was a virgin. I was a child. And my dad knew about it and didn't stop it. And I think that was, you know, a big betrayal for me. I wasn't aware at the time that this was quite common practice within the sannyasin group that, you know, older men sort of initiated young girls' first mm. sexual experience. Thank God it didn't happen for me. But I think it set me off on a trail of finding older men attractive, wanting to be with someone who was like a father figure, you know, wanting to be protected. That kind of imbalance in the relationship, I would kind of absorb myself in the presence of this person, you know, whether they be older or more dominant. I chose men like that for most of my teens and sort of 20s. And then I finally met a really lovely man and got married. He was my age, a very sort of equal, good relationship. But unfortunately, that relationship didn't last because I was still so much in the shadow of my dad and he got really ill with alcoholism around the time I got married. And that kind of took me over in a way. But now I went through Jungian therapy for years and that was massively helpful. It was a combination of having babies, mm -hmm. <laughs> getting to know myself and then going through therapy, which really, really mm -hmm. helped me bring all aspects of myself together. Because I think I also, I was very scared of the parts of me that were like my father mm -hmm. to let those parts out. And I think the Jungian psychoanalysis really helped me do that. So now I'm in a very happy relationship with a wonderful man, thank God. <laughs> but, you know, it wasn't actually just my father. It was also my mother. My mother was a big influence on me because of my father being so destructive. I think I leaned more into her and mm -hmm. needed her guidance a lot as I was growing up. And I had a very close relationship with her. So actually I had to find myself apart from her as well as my father. And that, yeah, mm -hmm. it was definitely mm -hmm. triggered by having both my children, feeling that sense of deep, deep love and responsibility for two little humans and not mm -hmm. wanting them to mm -hmm. be affected by the things you have been affected by. Did having your own children, watching them cross those developmental stages, be those ages, how did that affect you? 
in terms of where it placed his behavior and what it actually would do to a child? Well, I gave birth to my daughter very soon before my father died. And I did not want him anywhere near her. I mean, the sense of anger, actually, and fury and protectiveness of this little child, this baby, was profound. But the shocking thing for me was that me and my husband, their dad, separated at exactly the same ages that my dad left. So we separated when my son was six and my daughter was eight. And that felt like a very sad repeat of my past. My dad's trauma was the seven-year-old on the step and then he left us around that time and then I was doing the same. Mm -hmm. And I know that there are those sorts of patterns and even if you're aware of it, you're still victim to it. Absolutely. And yet your experience shows us that there is a process here and it's a process of healing and it's a process of grief and that you do get to another side, but there's a lot that happens in between. And these cycles are intergenerational in ways that are so close that it can feel eerie and unsettling. And then I'd imagine writing about it must have been an extraordinary revelation. The writing was very healing, actually. I mean, at times it was painful. Mm -hmm. But in the end, it became a way of me understanding him more than I did when he was alive, which I found really mm -hmm. interesting. It was almost like his death kind of liberated mm -hmm. him mm -hmm. from me so that I could really properly get to know him. It's ethically problematic to write about somebody when they're dead in the way that I've written about him. Yeah. But... I justify that because of the dynamic of our relationship. And I think it was necessary for me to do that in order to liberate myself from mm -hmm. him. It's not easy to do, Dr. Lilly. A lot of people would say, he's gone, let the stories go with them. But it could very well be that ultimately freeing yourself from that subjugation required you to actually peer all the way in and see what it was all about so you could finally understand it to see it to release it towards the end of your book you write one night in a fitful sleep two words bubbled up from my consciousness bad dad i woke up asking myself how does a man drop so rapidly from such heights bad dad is what he was the realization of this sat solemnly in my stomach. My parent is a bad person is not an easy thought because where does that leave me? That to me was an extraordinarily powerful part of your book. Could you share more about that? Because in that you captured what so many people I've worked with clinically share and struggle with. It was a really odd experience because when I sold the book, it had a different title. It was called Starman. And I had come to the realization that because my dad had had that experience at boarding school, he was traumatized. And that was kind of my answer. That was why his life had been such a disaster and why he couldn't love us and why he left us. All the puzzle pieces fell into place. But when my editor, who's very perceptive, took on the book, she said, look, you know, you're going to find this quite tricky to hear, but I think you need to readdress this. It's not simply that your dad went to boarding school and then that led to him doing all those things. You know, I think your readership is going to feel slightly kind of 
put out by this because you're making excuses for him. You're still keeping him on that pedestal. I was taken aback, but I was also really struck by her perception. I just thought it was extraordinary that she had seen Mm -hmm, something mm -hmm. that I had not been able to see. And that's when I had the dream. And it was so clear to me that, you know, my father could potentially be a bad man. And actually, when he died, he had a couple of notebooks on him, you know, his poems and his reflections. In amongst all this kind of drunk stuff was this key text, which was, I'm a bad person. And, you know, I'm frightened that people are going to see how bad I am. And I just, I just realized, actually, that that was the crux of it for him, was that he was masking his fear of being bad or that he really believed that he was bad, or that actually he was bad. You know, that's a difficult thing to acknowledge in a parent. It's a difficult thing to acknowledge in a loved one or someone that you've invested all this Mm -hmm. time loving because it's sort of, yeah, I mean, where does it leave you? You know, it it sort of throws you back on yourself Mm -hmm. for loving that person, but also as a daughter, being part of that person and inheriting that who am I? as his daughter. It is a complicated one. I think it is the absolute struggle of working through significant narcissistic relationships. And a technique I use with clients all the time is this concept of the multiple truths stacked up like so many pancakes, you know, higher and higher, which was he did so many bad things. He abandoned a family. He abandoned his own children. He put them in harm's way. He left a young wife, your mother, to fend for herself with her family. And he gave you moments of fun and joy and you felt connected with him and he made you laugh on Christmas morning. And I think that the multiple truths is that all of those things are true. And he did have a terrible experience in a boarding school and that explains it. And that's not an excuse. And it becomes so many jagged edges when we try to tell these stories. But that idea when it's a parent is who does that make me because I come from this. And the work I've always done with people who have gone through this is it's made you a survivor. It's made your experience more difficult. It's not destiny. If he had only been a bad man, Dr. Lilly, this would have been easy. But he was much more than that. And the seeing of that is what's so painful. But... I also think when you've held someone on a pedestal all that time, it can be quite a relief as well to actually just say, Mm -hmm. okay, maybe he was just a bit of a shit. (laughs) Right. Not only that, but I actually think, Dr. Lilly, in a strange way, when you have a healthy parent with whom there's a secure attachment, you don't put them on a pedestal. You sit right with them at the table. It's when the parent is unavailable, invalidating, narcissistic, toxic, that's when we put them on the pedestal. And the only way to take them off the pedestal is to call a thing what it is, which was he had no place being a father. But mercifully, it gave us you, Dr. Lilly, and your story, which is going to do so much and is doing so much good in the world. I mean, at the end of the day, the world needed Lilly done. And this is the way we got Lilly done. And there's a grace in that. So and I think that there's a certain acceptance we have to have around that, too. Well, that's lovely. Thank you so much. That's such a sweet way to end an amazing conversation. My goodness. (laughs) 
Thank you so much, Dr. Lilly. I mean, your book is extraordinary. I want every clinician, graduate student in psychology to read it, and anyone out there who's had the experience of a narcissistic parent of any kind, this is a must-read book. It hit every bit of the nuance of this experience, and I can't thank you enough for your time. Well, thank you, and it's just been such a pleasure. What an amazing show that you have here. I can see how helpful this is to all your listeners. Thank you. Here are my takeaways from my conversation with Dr. Lilly. First, the cult which her father belonged to, the Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh Sinyasin cult, is yet another example of a cult just being a narcissism social club. The stance they took that your feelings are your responsibility, which basically allowed her father to abdicate any responsibility for his children or family, is a prime example of the codified selfishness that many cultic organizations exhibit, as well as pathologizing emotion and feeling in other human beings to subjugate them. For our next takeaway, Dr. Lilly is not the first and will not be the last guest who will reflect on the fun of a narcissistic parent, the sort of carefree, engaged, and even childlike spirit that some people look back on with their parents during childhood. And obviously, this is not all narcissistic parents. Most don't do that. But in this episode, Dr. Lilly holds on to some of that, and even as her father repeatedly lets her down, makes poor financial decisions, future fakes her with money, and then positions himself in a way that compels her to have to step away from her adult life to clean up the messes he made, to his very dying day, speaks to how tight these trauma bonds can be wound and how the complexity and confusion of these relationships, our ability to hold on to the small handful of good memories and the eternal hope that it could be different can keep us stuck in a poisonous space. In this next takeaway, a dynamic that often unfolds in a narcissistic relationship of any kind and a dynamic that Dr. Lilly shared in her story is that the narcissistic person makes themselves psychologically scarce enough so that we are always craving a little more. And for a child, this is an almost impossible situation because every child wants as much of their parents as they can get. She shares the poignant line, I didn't have enough of him. And because narcissistic parents are not attuned to their children, the child is forever left with a longing that they carry into adulthood and can be an unfortunate yearning that drives children of narcissistic parents into unhealthy relationships in which these cycles are perpetuated. At the end of her story, you can see that she still hoped that he would come around. And for any child of a narcissistic parent, in most cases, the wish that the narcissistic parent will come around never goes away. For this next takeaway, the intergenerational losses and pivots in families so often repeat on a schedule. It's almost eerie how it happens. Dr. Lily's dad being abandoned to an abusive boarding school at the age of seven, her dad abandoning his children when they were the same age, Dr. Lily got divorced when her child was around that age too. Whether it is doing what we know, learning from observation, 
or some deep unprocessed psychodynamic issue, and it's likely a combination of all of the above, many of us can resonate with this and the grief it raises when we look back on it. It can all feel somewhat tragically predestined. And lastly, it was interesting to hear Dr. Lily share that when she originally titled her book, Starman, and tied it to the narrative she had long held about her father's behavior all tracking back to his abandonment and the boarding school, and that her editor's more objective eye pulled her back and reminded her that it wasn't quite that simple. We can often get stuck in these origin stories, and we tell them to ourselves so often that they become real. The problem with these origin stories is that we can forget that the harmful behavior that these mythologies hide harmed us and irrevocably affected our lives. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Elevation with Stephen Furtick podcast was created with you in mind. This is a podcast for those feeling discouraged or needing guidance from God. Together in this podcast, we'll dive deep into scripture, uncover the powerful truths that will help you rise above your limitations and embrace your full potential. We're here to equip you with the tools you need to conquer life's challenges. Listen to Elevation with Stephen Furtick every Sunday and Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Diosa. And I'm Mala. We are the creators of Locatora Radio, a radiophonic novella, which is a fancy way of saying... A a podcast. podcast. Welcome to Locatora Radio Season 9. Love Love at at First first listen. Listen. This season... We're falling in love with podcasting all over again. With new segments, correspondence, and a new sound. Listen to Locatora Radio as part of the Michael Dura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs> 